Welcome to Eurocron, a podcast about people whose names you may not be familiar with now, but you will remember their stories. Hi, I'm Scott Pitney, the host for Eurocron. So, without further ado, let's jump right into our next extraordinary story. My next guest on Eurocron is Michael Anthony Giglardi. Michael's born in a borough of Toronto, Canada called Etobicoke, a predominantly Italian community in 1968. His family moved to a small town in northern Ontario called Meaford, where he attended school and found his love for music at age 13. In the next six years, Michael left his country and traveled to California. He found himself homeless and living under the Santa Monica Pier. He quickly became a constant on the famous Sunset Strip in the late 80s, headlining infamous clubs such as Gazzari's, the Roxy Theater, and the Whiskey A Go-Go with his own band. Married at the early age of 19, he and his wife had two daughters and eventually five grandchildren and are still married going on 33 years. Congratulations. Michael is a Latin flamenco and smooth jazz guitarist who plays countless events for casinos, private clients, and theater concerts, mostly in California, Arizona, and Nevada and has also played internationally as far away as Israel. Michael currently has settled down in the Coachella Valley and continues to play music and also has added speaker to his list of occupations, speaking on the paranormal demonology and biblical discoveries. Michael has a certificate in eschatology from the Henry Morris Institute and is a worship leader in his church for many years. He loves the outdoors and is an avid treasure hunter, small-time archaeologist, and spends portion of each year recording an album which is mostly instrumental for the general public as well as time each week with his immediate family and grandchildren. Michael has written a book, Devil Take the Hindmost, the harrowing story of a small boy in his 12 years of survival in the clutches of evil. Devil Take the Hindmost is simply a story of terror. The book is currently available at Amazon.com, ebook, and the Kindle store, which of course will post all of that information on the Eurocron website. Michael, welcome to Eurocron. Uh, thank you and good morning. It's uh, it's good to be here. And once again, um, thank you uh, for being able to uh, release my story and, and talk about it um, to the people. Uh, I know you're from Texas. I don't think I've done an interview in Texas yet, uh, which is great. And I'm very, very happy and honored to be here this morning. Well, we're honored to have you, Michael. Thanks so much for joining us. So let's jump right in as there is a lot to unpack here. Where is a good place to start your extraordinary story? Well, for me, um, there is a beginning point, and uh, that beginning point started in Mississauga, which is another borough of, of um, Ontario, Canada. That's the uh, primary place where I grew up. Uh, from about uh, three, two year, nah, three years old to four years old, almost five years old before we moved up to Meaford, which was a hundred miles away. Uh, the very first thing that happened that I can remember, and I re- I remember this very clearly. Um, I even remember the shirt I was wearing. To tell you the truth, um, I was about three years old. We were living in an apartment on the eleventh floor in Mississauga on here Ontario Street. And, um, you know, being from an Italian family, um, when you're a child, you always get this this lunch that your parents make. It's called um, pasta fasule, 
or uh, it's like a pastina. It's like American children would know it as like um, alphabet, you know, kind of like an alphabet soup, you know, with a little with a little broth and stuff in it. Look kind of like Lipton soup, except Italian style. Mm-hmm. And every day for lunch, you know, I would get this and my mother would call me to the table and then um, the soup would already be there. You know, and this one particular day she called me to the table. I went, sat at the table. It wasn't there. And she came up behind me and she poured it all down my shoulder, scalding hot soup. And this was the very beginning uh, of understanding that something was really wrong. This is as far back as I can reach. And, um, you know, I was screaming my head off. You know, of course, it, it was very painful. Um, she called a taxi. She made no no effort to to um, uh, nurture me or tell me it was going to be okay. Uh, I remember the the very specifically. I remember the the taxi ride to the doctor. She never said a word to me. Never held me. Never kissed me. Never said anything encouraging to me. We went to the doctor. And I remember them putting a bandage on it and some ointment or whatever. And then uh, we made our way back home. And not once did she did she um, you know recognize the fact that uh, that it was very painful for me. There was no affection. There was just she was a blank. And this was the beginning of what we, both me and my sister. My sister was seven years older, so she has a little bit of a different perspective than I do, and was able to kind of fill in some of the gaps from the early days, but. This was the beginning. This was the beginning that something was was wrong. From from this place, we moved into a house where my cousin lived underneath us. Um, we have these homes in Canada where you have an upper level and you have a, a basement level, and you can accompany two families in it. And uh, I remember in that house hearing noises. Um, uh, this was all the beginning of it. Um, my mother, before I was born had lost her father in a tragic accident. And um, my sister told me and other family members told me that my mother adored my my grandfather, who I was named after. And uh, um, I, I believe that this was the, the, the starting point uh, for all of this demonic activity because she adored him, she lost him. Um, my grandmother at the time um, when she lost her husband, her beloved husband, which they all loved so much, I never met him. Um, she lost her mind and went out and partied. And my mother had to take care of her two siblings. And my recollection of when I was three years old, my my aunt used to live downstairs. And when I would go to bed, they would leave the door open. And, you know, when you're three years old, you know, three and a half years old, you know, you remember these things and people think that you don't, you know, you're not able to comprehend or understand things when adults are talking, but, you know, you have a memory and later on in life, you recall those things and you go, ah, that's what was going on. I always remember at nighttime hearing my mother and her sister talk about seances and, and, uh, you know, things of that nature, because in the early seventies, you know, seances and swinging and, and Ouija boards, that was all very popular back then. And I believe that this was the beginning point because my mother was so devastated by my her father's loss, you know, by her loss of her father, 
that she attempted to to uh, contact him. And you know, we all know that those are those are doorways to evil entities. And you know, contrary to popular belief in some of the movies, you know, demonic pressure, uh, uh, demonic possession does not happen. You know, overnight, you don't summon a demon; they come into you, and you're a raging lunatic. That's not what happens. It's a slow, slow progression where they come to the house. You start to hear the scratching, banging, unusual things. That person begins to hear voices. And this is exactly what happened to my mother. She began to tell us that she was hearing voices, um, that she was, you know, seeing shadows and, and feeling, you know, a presence in, in her room and at nighttime where she was waking her up and, and, and these sort of things. By the time I was five years old, of course, by the soup incident, I was traumatized. And by the time we moved uh, 100 miles away to Meaford, which um, was far from Toronto, from where we lived in Toronto, Etobicoke, uh, my dad used to work down there. And all of a sudden, we picked up and moved 115 miles away. And then my dad had to drive all the way back down to Toronto to go to work. So this was very strange. Um, I still, to this day, don't understand what happened, um, why we moved so far away. Um, something had happened. Uh, I remember our families being very strained with uh, my mother's other sister and my uncle. Uh, something was weird. And of course, my mother began to change. And by the time we moved up to Meaford, we were completely isolated. And from 1970, I think we moved up there in 1975, we were completely isolated up there and neither, no family member ever came to visit except one of my dad's uh, aunts. And uh, as weird as it was, they stayed outside and we, we um, uh, spoke with them and, and, and uh, had some time together outside. They never came in the house because of my mother. But uh, by the time we moved to Meaford, things began to be more defined. Uh, she was beginning to talk to herself. She was exhibiting traits that were not normal. Uh, there was many problems, many problems in the house with my sister and I and her. Uh, we began to to fear her. We began to um, isolate ourselves in our bedrooms uh, so much so by by the time I was probably seven or eight. Um, I was pulling a dresser, an armoire, huge armoire, and I filled the bottom of it with bricks, pull it, pushing it up against the door, and I would sleep with a hockey stick in my bed in the same position that after 10 years, seven or eight to 10 years, I had worn holes in my mattress from my knee, my hip, my ankle, my shoulder, from being in the same fetal position holding a hockey stick. And my sister, all of that time, lived in her room with a, uh, a lock on the inside of her door because our mother tried to come in at nighttime, two, three o'clock in the morning. I'd hear the door rattle and she'd try to come in. And by this time, like I said, she was exhibiting uh, um, unnatural, unnatural things. She was uh, making predictions about things she knew where we were when we were out, what we were doing, which was impossible for her to know. Um, she was gaining weight and eating ravenously like an animal. 
like I had never seen. And this went on for years. Uh, by the time I was um, in grade six, grade seven, uh, it progressively got worse and worse. She began talking to herself all day, sitting in a chair, laughing, having conversations with unknown people. And a couple years after that, it began to get worse. She was having conversations <laughs> with other people um, in different languages. And then the voices started to change. She had different voices. And these were voices that were not her own. She was only, she was maybe five feet, 4'11". Uh, she's a very petite woman, but she weighed, by that time, by my late teens, she was maybe 260 pounds uh, because of just eating ravenously. And uh, so much so that we had to, we had to uh, contain all our food in a freezer downstairs with a chain on it because it got so bad. And I basically starved for 10 years while my dad was, was working 100 miles away. She ate everything in the house, and I was out stealing lunches from kids at school and in the summertime um, stealing food out of gardens. Uh, I did this on a regular basis. And uh, during this whole time, she began, it began to escalate more and more. Uh, it got to the point where... The police were coming over because she began to terrorize the neighbors, knock on their doors, tell them that she was going to cut their heads off. Uh, so then, of course, the police would come. She terrorized all the neighbors on our entire street. Um, it got to the point where it got so bad that one day when I was in school, uh, there was a knock on the, the door in homeroom. There was uh, some authorities there. And uh, they pulled me out of school. Uh, I got in my neighbor's car, which I had no idea what was going on. And he had told me there had been an accident. And uh, by the time I got home, uh, my dad was there and uh, there were some authorities there. And they had told me that my mother tried to kill my sister with a butcher knife. Mm. She had yelled out that uh, she was a witch and that they told her that she needs to die. And... And she would have died if, because this was uh, at the end of the school year, so in Canada, uh, the, the, the weather was mild. And that morning, I happened to be pretty lazy, and I left the lobby door open, uh, because we have mud rooms in Canada, you know, where you dust off your snow so you don't bring them inside. Mm -hmm. And um, I had left the interior mud room door open, and the screen door, the screen door, you'd have to, if the screen door closed, you know, it's one of those push button ones, they, it stuck. So you had to hit it three, four times before it cleared so you could open the door. And I left the exterior door open to, to go outside. My sister had told me later on that because I had left all those doors open, she wasn't killed mm -hmm. because she was able to run out through those three doors rather relatively easy because my mom was right on top of her. And then the neighbors saw, saw and heard her screaming as my mother chased her around uh, the car, one of the cars in the driveway uh, with the butcher knife. And um, they had taken her away that day um, in a straitjacket to the, to the local mental institution. And uh, we thought that that was it, that was over, we were free of this. And three months later, they brought her back.
by that time, my sister was seven years older than me and was able to live on her, on her own, but she moved away. And that's when things got really bad because now there was just me left in the house and my dad was working in Toronto, um, you know, five, six days a week. He'd come up, you know, for a few hours on, on the weekend, basically one day or a few hours I might've seen him. And then he was gone by Sunday. How old were you at this time, Michael? Well, when things, when that happened, I was probably 12, 13 years old. And this is where it really began to escalate. And and when Um, they, when they brought her back, so you were old enough to comprehend, I guess, if, um, you know, they bring your mom back and say, okay, we're bringing them, bringing her back. You must've been asking questions like why? Well, yeah. I mean, I was, uh, you know, like where were social services? I mean, if that happened today, it would be on the news. It would be, you know, this radical story, but you know, the police had come to our house many, many times, you know, they had probably been to our house before this happened, maybe 10 times. Um, she tried, she lit the, lit the, uh, she burned everything that we owned in the fireplace, caught the fireplace on, on fire in the attic. We had the fire department over there several times putting out fires. And, but this is when it started to get really bad. And I started to really fear now because it was just me and her. And my dad would only come up on the weekend. And, you know, everybody asks me, you know, well, what about your dad? What was your dad thinking at that time? Well, you know, my dad was an interesting guy. You know, he grew up in Italy during World War II. He was a refugee in a refugee camp um, after World War II. Uh, he lived in government housing as a kid with his six brothers and sisters, you know, and he he never went to school. He had a grade four education because of the war. And when he came to this country, he came to he came to Canada at the age of 19. You know, he didn't speak English very well. He still to this day he doesn't speak English really well. And he just had no comprehension. You know, he was dealing with his own traumas because he watched Nazis, you know, try to shoot his dad as they were, you know, hiding in a small cave by his house and they were watching the Nazis, you know, run across a field shooting at their father. And then a bomb went off and blew up their donkey and all the guts went on them. So he had, he had a lot of trauma. So he was a very disconnected father. He really didn't know what to make of what was going on with my mom. Um, We all just, at that point, by the time I was 13 now, I was able to, you know, deduce that there's something terribly wrong with her. And we just all thought that she was crazy. Yeah. Cause you know? I want to, I want to, uh, yeah, sorry. I, I just, since you touched on that, this brings me to something that you had wrote, uh, you had written in your prologue, which I wanted to uh, ask you about um, quote, the true story of the demon possession of my mother, but the frantic attempt of a seven year old boy to survive the daily onslaught of her insane and devilish behavior. My question, Michael, at what point did you and maybe your family discuss, you know, this is something beyond mental illness. This is something having to do with, you know, being possessed something in, in the spiritual world about, about what age and, and when, you know, did you start to think of this being that, you know, was the reason for her acting this way? Well, you know, that's a really interesting question. And I'll tell you, we were, we were like, um, the frog in the proverbial, you know, boiling water, the temperature went up slowly. This happened over multiple years, 12 years. It was very slow. 
very gradual, but definitely progressively worse. And we had no idea. None of us ever contributed. Like I said, I lived with my sister, but never saw her because she would pop out of her room, grab food, and then go right back in her room and lock her door. So for years, I never even saw her, even though I lived with her. Mm. My father was never there, only for a few hours on the weekend, and he was gone all during the week, came back on Saturday evening, left on Sunday. So there was just me. After my sister left, there was just me. No one had ever attributed it to a, a demonic activity. And of course, it got worse and worse, it was severe demonic activity. But, you know, I, I believe that that's how God really rescued me from that incident. Because if I had if I had realized in actuality what the reality of this was, I think I would have had a heart attack because there was a there was a, a point in time where I had told myself it's me or her. One of us is going to die. Mm-hmm. And it was just it was just our lives. I mean, I can only speak for myself, mm-hmm. but it was my life. I, you know, I was three years old when this started and I knew nothing else. So, I mean, I went to school. I never told anybody, hey, this is what's going on in my house because I didn't know it was wrong. Mm. It was, it was, I look at it now, you know, as a 53 year old, you know, 40 years, you know, 40 years later. And I look at it and I was like, you know, that was the blessing of it all that I was not able to see the reality of it because I mean, nonetheless, I was terrified, but if I had known exactly what it is, what it was, I would have, I would have gone insane. And I almost did. Um, You know, we never suggested any, my mother was a Jehovah's Witness for years until my father and her got excommunicated. And it was around, I think around about 12 or 13 years old. I think that they had sensed something about her that was off. Um, my dad had had been excommunicated before her. And they were saying, you know, rumors about, you know, drug charges and mafia and stuff like this, which we now know that my dad was more than likely part of the mafia. He ran with uh, the Luciano Pavarotti and his brother who lived in Toronto at the time, you know, and they were they were mafia. Mm. So it was a very strange, a perfect storm uh, for all of this. There was no outside intervention other than the fact that they, uh, the neighbors called the police all the time. The police would come over. I would hear my mother speaking in a normal voice in another room, talking to police in a voice that I never heard her speak in, which was her natural speaking voice. I never heard her talk normally. Hmm. She was always talking like we weren't even in the room. She would have these conversations, these animated conversations going back and forth. By the time I was 16 is what is which that's when it became so terrible that she was having these conversations going in between these these guttural voices back and forth in different languages. You know, I had no idea even what she was saying, and I just discounted all of it. It's just that she was crazy, even though in the back of my mind, I was terrified. I was terrified, but you know, you can't live. I had no one inter intervening for me. So I lived as a child, the way my body coped with it. I mean, I didn't go through puberty until I was 21. 
you know, it completely changed my chemistry from, from, you know, being traumatized for so long, you know, and living under duress, you know, extreme duress, you know, but by the time I was 16, things got so bad. She would be sitting in a chair all day long. She was so heavy that she bottomed out the chair. She was sitting in this chair. Her hair was down over her eyes. All of her teeth were rotted out of her mouth. She didn't have any teeth that weren't broken. And I don't even know how this even happened, but they were all broken. She would wag her tongue at me and her tongue was serrated on both sides of her mouth because of the cuts and the healing and the cuts of the healing from the side, from her teeth, her molars that were all busted. I could see in her mouth, she'd do this, you know, she'd wag her tongue at me, you know, and I could see all of her broken teeth and it just shredded her tongue up and it would heal and shred. So she had all these bumps on the side of her tongue. It was just gross. And she stunk to high heaven and she was, I, I mean, there were times where I had been so frustrated that I would go right up to her face, inches from her face, and scream as loud as I could in her sh- in her face, shut the F up, because I couldn't stand it, because it went, it went from the morning when the sun came up, her babblings, all the way till evening. And then as soon as the sun went down, she would go into her room. Anyway, when I when I yelled in her face, it was as if she reacted like I wasn't even present in the room. There was no reaction. It it was it was a, a, an exercise in futility and frustration beyond belief. And then when the sun went down, she would go in her room, and then I would hear all this banging. And because we had a basement, our our floor was a subfloor. You know, if you have a subfloor, if you bang on the subfloor, you can hear it all throughout the house. I would hear all this banging going on, like banging on the on the, the walls and the floor, and like people were wrestling. And I would run into her room, swing the door open really wide to try and catch her what was going on. And she'd be lying in her bed with the covers up to her eyeballs, not saying a word. I would be like, what the hell is going on in here? Because, you know, she was 260 pounds. You know, a woman like that, if that weight doesn't move very fast. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'd come, our house was very small. It was only like 1,200 square feet. So I could get there within two seconds, you know, and, and swing open the door and try to catch her to see what was going on. And she'd be lying in her bed with the covers pulled up. You know, she couldn't, she couldn't possibly get into that position in two seconds. You know, I would hear it, too, because it was a very small house. Anyway, you know, this is what happened at nighttime. Then at nighttime, she would be screaming, screaming bloody murder in the middle of the night, Ah! you know, screaming. And then I would go in the room and she'd be like aghast. And she'd say, Satan's jumping from the ceiling onto my chest, Mm. you know, And, and this would repeat night after night after night. And I would try from time to time, I would run in there and try and catch her because I was, you know, curious, but I was drawn to this. I was drawn to this evil. And I mean, I, I, I wanted it over. I, you know, I didn't care if she killed me. I, it was her or me. Something had to give here. I was just, I was losing my mind. This was about, I don't know, a uh, 10th grade. And uh, it was, I was beginning to just lose my mind now. 
And, you know, like I told you, um, my dad would lock up all of our food in the basement, um, in, in the freezer. We had to have all our food frozen because she'd eat us out of house and home. I mean, she ate like a ravenous animal. There was nothing, there was nothing, um, I don't know how to say the words. Um, there's nothing, there was nothing um, feminine about her. She ate like, like a, like a ravenous animal, mm-hmm. you know? And I, you know, I got used to it because this went on year after year, day after day, after day, after day, till there was no food, you know? And it got so bad that one day when I came home, I, you know, I went downstairs. This is where our freezer was. And I came downstairs and there she was trying to hacksaw the chain off the, off the uh, freezer. And the only thing I could yell out, I yelled out, Hey, and she was all slouched over. She, she turned her head to me. Her, her hair was all in her eyes and she just growled at me, this guttural growl that she's not capable of doing because she had really, her normal speaking voice was a very, very high voice because she was, you know, she has short vocal cords. She was only four foot 11. I don't even think she was even five feet tall. And she looked at me and she had a snarl. She growled at me. She threw the hacksaw down and then went running upstairs. And, you know, a 260-pound woman, I never seen her move so fast in my life. And I was drawn to it. I was like, this is it. This is the confrontation. And I ran upstairs. She beat me upstairs and went into her bedroom and slammed the door with such force we had windows open, which she slammed it with such force that it sucked all the air out of the house and the windows were rattling back and forth. And I stood outside her door and I could hear her growling behind the door. And I was like, what the hell? You know, I, but you know, I was complete, I don't know how to explain this to you, but I was completely drawn to the terror because I wanted it over. I wanted her dead or me dead whichever one. And I didn't care. I didn't, nothing crossed my mind about laws, about what to do. I was in survival mode for many years and I was standing there and I could see that the the door, which was a hollow core door and it was bowed out towards me. She was leaning very heavily against the door so much. So I could see that the door was bowed and she was holding the doorknob and I couldn't with all my strength, I mean, by that time, 16, 16 years old, I'm over six feet tall, you know, and I'm quick and fast and strong. And, you know, I couldn't I couldn't break the grip that she had on the on the door handle. But I could hear her growling behind the door in very lowly, just <laughs> like this. And, you know, I decided just to stand there and I stood there, I don't know, maybe five or six minutes. And then. I saw the bow in the door disappear, and then I saw the handle relax. And so I kind of rubbed my hands together and I said, okay, I'm gonna swing open this door. So I swung open the door and at that very second, I saw my mother looking at me. Her eyes were just black balls. There was, a, there was nothing of her identity I could see in her. And on her left side of her forehead, left side of her forehead and temple area, it was bulging and pulsating back and forth, like like um, maybe an inch or so out, like, you know, um, uh, disfigured. She was disfigured. And when I saw that, I was freaked out. 
And I was in shock when I saw her eyes and I saw her uh, pulsating, you know, the, the left side of her forehead and temple. She threw some pennies at me. I don't know why she threw pennies, but she had pennies at me. She lunged at me and I went running. I ran outside. I ran outside. She, she didn't follow me outside. She went back into her room, slammed the door again with such force. It did the same thing again, rattled the windows like the, 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 cause we had a, our front window was a great big pane of, of double, double sided glass. And the thing was just, you know, going back and forth like an earthquake which she slammed it with such force. And at that point I was in the shock of my life. I was in so much shock. I was going, <laughs> I was trying to say a word and I couldn't say a word. And I remained, I think, on the driveway maybe 10 to 20 minutes. And I said, I've, I've got to get help. I've got to get help. So fortunately, you know, right inside the door, our phone, our phone was there and it had a long cord. So I slowly opened the door to make sure she wasn't there. I grabbed the phone and took it outside. It had a long cord on it. Uh, I was out on the porch and uh, I, my dad happened to be home that day. So it had to have been a Saturday afternoon. I knew where he was. I knew the number because back then, you know, we memorized phone numbers and we had a dial, um, a finger dial phone, you know, rotary style mm -hmm. because it was, you know, you know, um, maybe 1980, 79, 80, 81, 82, somewhere in there. Um, I was trying to dial the number to my dad's where my dad had a girlfriend at that time. And I was trying to dial the number. And I couldn't dial the number because my I couldn't get my finger in the first number. I was shaking so incredibly bad. I was in a state of shock that I've never been in in all my life. Being able, thinking of being that young and losing my ability, you know, my sharp focus as a youth and, and losing my ability to put a finger in the, in the, in the dial for number five, you know, because five was the area code. And I couldn't get it in. And it took me maybe 15 minutes to dial the number. Um, his girlfriend asked, answered the phone. I said to her, I couldn't say a word. I was just like, <laughs> you know, going like this as I was in shock still. She, she knew it was me. She put my dad on the phone. I couldn't say a word to my dad. He knew it was me. And he said, I'm coming home. And he was only a mile away. He was there, you know, within a few minutes. He, uh, he pulled in the driveway. He asked me what happened. I, I couldn't tell him. I, I couldn't speak. I just, mom, you know, that's that's what, all I could get out. So I followed him as he went into, you know, he opened up the door. He went into the lobby, the mud room, which is just a little four by four room. I was right behind him. He opened up the door to the living room. My mother was standing right there. She grabbed him, threw him to the ground. He was 5'7", probably 170 pounds at the time and in his 40s. So he was, you know, strong and, and healthy. She threw him to the ground. She jumped on him, was growling and scratching at his face, just tearing at his face. After a few minutes of scuffling, he was able to get out, get up. He ran outside. I ran out after him. And then she slammed the door again into her room and the same thing happened. The windows were shaking. My dad was in a state of shock. 
I was watching him. He couldn't talk because he knew that that was not the woman that he married. And we were both freaking out. Um, it took maybe 15 or 20 minutes. He was shaking profusely. And then he got the phone. He called the police. The police called the mental institution. They all came out. A whole army of people came out. And they took her away in a straitjacket for a second time. And within three months later, they brought her back. Gosh. So, you know, at, at that point, you know, when I had heard, at, when they took her away, I went in for counseling. And I went into, I, I remember this, it was my mother's general practitioner, doctor. They had several people there. They were interviewing me. And they were basically telling me to leave, even though I was a minor, because they didn't know what they were diagnosing. They didn't know how to deal with this. So they were they were placating me by talking to me, saying, so I hear you're a musician. You know, you should really pursue that and leave to Toronto and go with your sister and stuff like this. And I'm like, what are you people talking about? Uh, this isn't about me. And I told them, you know, they said, so the only way you're going to help me is if I come to you with a knife in my back. I remember sarcastically saying that because they were talking nonsense. They, they, all they wanted was to be relieved of this situation because they didn't know how to, to deal with it. And, you know, a funny thing is that when I was, you know, I was actually doing research uh, for my first book and I happened to, this was only a few months ago, three, maybe three, four months ago before I finished the book and released it, was that I ended up calling the very mental institution that she was admitted to. And I called and I asked the lady, I said, listen, I'm writing a book. I need some information on this particular person. and it happened during it happened during 1975 to 1985 within those years and the lady told me says well we wouldn't keep those files and she said they'd all be destroyed he said well just she said well just give me i've got some a few minutes so just give me the name and i'll check anyway you never know so i could hear her clacking away on the computer and all of a sudden there's a silence and i heard her go hmm Looks like that her all of her records have been archived. And she says, that's strange. And I said, well, where are they? She says, they're in a building off campus. So I say to her, can you get me those records? And she says, yeah, there's a $30, $35 fee. I'll get you the records and I'll call you. And I gave her my number and I waited for her to call. A week went by, no one called me. I called over there. I, unfortunately, I didn't get the lady's number, but I told them that somebody somebody was going to call me to get these records. And they're like, oh, well, who's the lady? And I said, I don't know her name, but here's the patient that I'm looking for. And then they said, well, we'll have to call you back. And they called me back and they said, we don't have those records. We don't have those records. They're, they've been destroyed. And I got nothing from nobody. I called again a few weeks later. No one knows nothing. And apparently, you know, the case is closed and there's nothing. I had talked to a exorcist who was in Canada during 75 to 85. And he told me that that was protocol in Canada 
that if the diagnosis was above what they could understand, that means something happened. Something happened in their presence where they weren't able to to put a diagnosis and understanding on it, that they would have archived those records and no one would have been able to talk about it after that. Mm. So to this day, I'm not able to retrieve those records and I'm not able to find out what it is that they witnessed while she was in the mental institution twice for three, three months. But whatever it was, the exorcist told me that it was above what they had diagnosed, it would have been something that was um, what we would call today paranormal. And because they didn't, they couldn't deal with it and had no explanation for it, they released her. That's why she came back. And that's why they brought her back, because they could not explain it. The only way that they could deal with it is truly if she had killed me. And then there you've got murder. But wow. even so, attempted murder on my sister, which my neighbors uh, were witnesses to, they still released her back into into a house with a with a a, a minor in it, and I, it's a colossal failure. And to answer your point now about you know whether we you know at what point did you understand that it was demonic? It wasn't till my forties, my forties that I began to research to research what happened to my mother. I I researched every exorcism every exorcism and every transcript since the 13th century. I took them all and placed them on a board just like a detective does, draw the timelines, draw all the characteristics to it and then begin to put my mother's characteristics on the other side and then join everything up. Everything lined up with the demonic possession. The the progression, the voices, the the interactivity with her own self in multiple languages. I had no idea what languages she was speaking, but to this day, I now know and study about five or six different languages because I could not stand the fact that I couldn't understand what she was talking about. And that is a product, a direct product of what I went through to this day. Um, I actually learned much German from the Annalise Michelle tapes that were the the audio tapes from Reverend Alts and um, Rents um, that uh, were from the Michelle uh, Annalise Michelle case of her demonic activity, and all of those cases lined up with my mother. I didn't I didn't have any preconceived notions any anything. I researched by myself. And then I found that all of these characteristics uh, were everything that she had. She had them all. The prophesying, being able to tell things that were out of her capacity of knowledge, you know, the different languages. There was an odor about her that was what was uh, deafening, <laughs> to say the least. Um, all of the, the banging in the house, the scratching, the, the screaming, everything she said, the demonic the, the the gate, I learned from just over the years, the gate of how the demonic entity spoke. And I heard that gate, you know, like a person walks with a gate, there's an identity to that person. Each person has a different gate. I could hear the familiarity in the tones and in the gate and speech patterns that I heard on the tapes. 
and in the transcripts that I read from many others. Mm. And it was, like I said, it wasn't until my forties that I came up, came up with this, um, um, incredibly enlightened knowledge to realize what happened. We had never gone to that point. We never said, Oh, we need a priest or something like that because my parents were Jehovah's witnesses. You know, a priest doesn't even enter the, the realm of possibility, you know, and, and we were completely sequestered where we were there. We were isolated and no one came to our house and this stuff went unchecked. You know, the only person that ever asked any questions was my 10th room homeroom teacher who asked me if, if everything okay was at, at home was okay. And I said, I said, yeah, fine. And she moved on because the only reason why she said that is because by the 10th grade, I was beginning to lose my mind and I wasn't going to school anymore. And I was signing my notes with my own name on it and they knew it and no one said a word. No one came to my defense, whether it was the police, even knowing that she was attempting murder, even knowing that she was doing all these things, you know, the fire department, the police department, the multiple visits by all of these authorities and no one did nothing. So that left me to figure it out on my own. And then here I am at 54 years old, 53, I'm almost 54. And I wrote my second book, Devil Take the Hindmost Part Two, which was the aftermath, which was from the age of 19 to now, because most people ask me, you know, well, you know, you must have been relieved when you left, when you left uh, Meaford, you know, for California and it was all over. It wasn't over. It was just the beginning. It was just the beginning uh, for me uh, of another 40 years. I mean, I still black out to this day. In the last year, I blacked out 12 times. And uh, I, I still, when the sun goes down, I shake incredibly, incredibly bad. And I have to be medicated to fall asleep or else I'll pass out. I'll go days and days without sleep and then I'll end up passing out. So the, the results of it all, I, I bear uh, daily. We'll be right back. Today's episode is sponsored by Pitney Properties. Pitney Properties provides real estate services to buyers and sellers located in and around the Houston area. Having been raised in Texas, LeBron Pitney is incredibly well-versed in the area's housing market and always manages to find her clients those hidden gems that other agents tend to overlook. LeBon's relentless style and integrity allow her to hold client satisfaction at her highest priority. She works hard to make the entire home buying and selling experience as productive and enjoyable as possible. Whether her clients are first-time buyers or seasoned investors, LeBon works tirelessly to accommodate their needs and exceed their expectations. To learn more about LeBon's real estate services, Please don't hesitate to call her today at 713-805-8871. That's 713-805-8871. Or contact Ron at sold at pitneyproperties.com.
let's uh, shift gears a minute, um, if we could, and talk about your experience being homeless in Santa Monica, especially those first few days and weeks. What was that like? Well, that was, uh, you know, coming from a small town in Canada, you know, where people are polite, you know, it's always a joke, you know, about Canadians, they're very polite and, you know, and coming to California, I expected the same thing. And in the first 24 hours that I was homeless in in um, Santa Monica, um, within five hours, five hours, uh, a girl was trying to scam me. Um, she was coming on to me and asking me if I wanted to go underneath the pier. And then I saw her looking over at two guys that were standing alongside of one of the one of the alongside the beachcomber, which is on the Santa Monica Pier. And I had realized I looked at them and I had realized because now I'm I'm the product of my environment. I'm very alert, very aware, and I'm always watching my back. And I saw that they were trying to, you know, um, you know, get me under the pier, beat me up and take my stuff because it was obvious that I was uh, a 19 year old tourist. You know, I stuck out like a sore thumb. I was wearing red pants. You know, I had uh, a frilled jacket on. I was 126 pounds and six feet tall. I had a gym bag and a guitar. So I stuck out like a sore thumb. And then by that night, by that night, uh, well, by the evening, the sun hadn't gone down yet. I met another guy out there who happened to be a drug dealer. I had no clue. I was so naive. He had me put all my belongings in his car because I had asked him, I want to know where the clubs are. I wanted to, because I'm a musician, I wanted to go to Gazaris and all these clubs. And he said, yeah, 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 I'll show you tonight. We'll go there. And didn't know he was lying to me. He had all my stuff. I put all my stuff in their car. Well, his buddy took off with the car. And um, he took off with the car. And then the guy that I was with started running. And I chased this guy. And I followed him all night. Uh, three o'clock in the morning, I followed him into a Denny's because he was the only link I had to all my stuff. I followed him into a Denny's. I followed him all, I followed him all night long till the next day at 11 o'clock. I followed him onto the beach. He was hitting on, hitting on some girl. And if you know about Santa Monica Pier, they have these uh, kind of like binoculars. You put a quarter in and you can look around on the beach on these binoculars. I happened to look up on the beach and I saw his buddy looking for him through the binoculars. Well, it was a proverbial, he was looking through the, the binoculars and then he looked away from the binoculars and looked at me. I got up, started running. He was on the pier, I was on the beach. He started running. I knew where, where he, they parked before. I cut him off as soon as he got to the car and I grabbed the guy. He was way bigger than me, but I acted like a psycho. I grabbed him, I threw him against the car. I said, give me my stuff. He said, okay, 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 okay. And then he gave me my gym bag. They had rifled through my gym bag, you know, looking for money and valuables. But when I came down, I had sewn, taken the stitches out of the inner lining and slipped in a thousand dollars in a traveler's check in the inner lining. And thank God when I opened up my gym bag and looked in the lining, it was still there. So that was the beginning of my uh, my uh, first 24 hours in California. Wow, what a start. So you broke into the Sunset Strip, not an easy task, as a lot of famous stars have played there, especially back in the 70s. What was that yes. like, breaking into that well, scene? Well, when I was on the Strip that night, after I got my gear, I went to the Strip that very night. 
And uh, I was, you know, once again, homeless standing on the, on the Sunset Boulevard now. Um, I think I was there at three or four o'clock in the afternoon. If the sun was still up and I was just sitting on a, 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 a bench there for the, the bus stop because it was the only place to sit, you know, right by the club there. And I waited there till nighttime. When nighttime came along, I had heard, you know, people were gathering. You know, at that time at the Sunset Strip, there were thousands of people out on the Strip. It's not like that today at all. But, I mean, it was the place to be. That's, music was happening. You couldn't even walk unless you walked in the street. So I was standing out there as hundreds of people started gathering. I was hearing them talk about that uh, Ozzy Osbourne was looking for a new guitar player. And there was an audition in town. And everybody was trying to find out where the audition was. And I had overheard some people talking about it. So I was like, hmm, maybe I should uh, I should try an audition for that. And this girl came up to me. She said, hi. She said, would you buy me a bottle? And I said, uh, I said I'm not old enough. I'm not old enough to buy a bottle. And from where I come from, you know, you had to be 19. In California, it was 21. But I wasn't 21. I didn't even know that. So that girl went back to her friends. Five minutes later, she came back again. And she said, hi, how are you doing? What are you doing tonight? And I said, well, I said, hmm. I said, well, I'm looking for the Ozzy Osbourne audition. I said, do you have any clue? <laughs> so she began to ask around. And um, she, she said, you know, there's some people that I know. Because she, she knew the people that were playing there that night. So I started hanging out with her all night long. She bought me a ticket into Gazzari's. Uh, we watched the band that night when the band was over and everything. Uh, we still hadn't found out where the where the audition was. Found out that people were suppressing it because they wanted a local to get it. Um, so she said, listen, I know other friends. I'll find out who. But by that time, it was midnight. And, uh, you know, I was tired. I had no place to go. So she said to me, why don't you come home and sleep on my couch? My mother won't mind. So I went home with her. We told her mother some great fabricated lie. I slept on the couch. And to, and to make the long story short, I've been with her ever since. <laughs> uh, we married a year later, and I've been with her now 36 Thirty-five years. That was quite a that was quite a night for you, to say the least. Going back yes. to uh, going back to the book, they'll take the hindmost. Michael, what kind of reaction have you um, have you gotten from your readers of your book? Well, it's it's been it's been very therapeutic. Um, to tell you, I, the reason why I wrote the book was not to put it out in the public. I actually wrote the book for my kids. My kids are in their 30s now, early 30s. And uh, I wrote the book, you know, because then, you know, nobody wants to talk about this stuff. I'm not going to sit. My kids have little kids, you know, and they take up their time. You know, they don't want to sit and hear my crazy story. So I said, listen, you know, I'm going to write, I'm going to write a book. And when you're ready to know what happened to dad, you know, you can read it. So I started writing the book and I did it over COVID and you know, it took me six or seven months to write it. And while I was writing it, my girls would ask me, because I have two girls, they'd ask me, Dad, how's the book coming along? I said, it's coming good. It's coming good. I'm just, you know, taking my time. And they said, yeah, okay, okay. And then they kept asking me, Dad, you know, you, you should really make this public. Because you always say that no one knew what was happening to you 
what if somebody out there reads that and it's happening to them and nobody cares? And I said, you know, you're absolutely right. Because I just because I was one of those one in a million that this could happen to doesn't mean there isn't another one in a million out there that, you know, somebody could share the story and, and, and gain encouragement from it and possibly stop it, you know, or a friend of a family that it's happening to, you know, because nobody intervened for me. And that is the greatest tragedy of my heart is that I had to bear this and no adult came in and, and helped, you know, and it makes me sad just thinking about it and no one cared about me enough to even, you know, pursue anything, you know, to try and, you know, crack the veneer and see what was going on behind these closed doors. So that's how I ended up saying, you know what, you're right. And I'll make this public. And then I was really afraid, you know, I told my girls, yeah, I'll make it public. And then I rescinded on that. And I said, I can't do this because I, I can't, I, I won't be able to take people saying, oh, you know, you're a liar. You're trying to sell books or you're trying to get movie deals and all this kind of crap. And, you know, I just couldn't, ha- you know, having somebody tell you that you're a liar after you went through all that is like, you know, how dare you, mm-hmm. you know, how dare you even say such a thing? You know, I mean, I pass out 40 years later, I'm still passing out from the trauma. Mm. So, you know, I, I was really leery about that. But the thing that really swung, swung me the other way was that I happened to be watching on Netflix uh, a show called Hostage to the Devil. And it was a documentary. And that's what I like to watch because documentaries, you know, are based on on truths. You know, movies, you know, you, you rarely can glean any truth from that. Sure. But uh, so I'm watching this movie and I'm thinking, wow, the, the, the producer is really integral about this. He must have some knowledge about this. So I ended up contacting him. His name was Marty Stalker, and he's in Belfast. He's a producer in Belfast, and he did the movie, the documentary, Hostage to the Devil. And, you know, I wrote him my story, and I thought, oh, he'll probably never answer me anyway. Um, he answered me the next day, and he said, you know what? Send me your story. So I, I sent him the story and I think oh, he'll probably think I'm, you know, once again, trying to sell books or something like this. And, and anyway, um, so uh, he contacted me. He said, I'm going to read it this weekend. And I said, OK, well, Monday morning he contacted me. and I was shocked. And he said, Michael, this is this is incredible. He said, you know, it's everything that I've heard of. You know, it seems to meet, you know, the criteria, if you will, you know, and um I, that's, he said, listen, you know, you need to, you need to publish, publish this. And that's kind of what threw me onto the other side of it. You know, they said, okay, you know, if he believes me, you know, then, you know, he has experience with this kind of stuff, then, um, you know, maybe it's a good idea. But, uh, you know, to answer your question, you know, I'd say 90% of the people have been, thank God, very um, um, compassionate. I'm going to use that word. Uh, I have a lot of people write me, and I, I'm so grateful for that because you can only have compassion if you believe it. I've had I've had some people, you know, call me a liar and all that stuff, and I know that that's that's part of the landscape, you know, of telling such a sensational story. But unfortunately for me, it's all true and then some. There's stuff that that I remember that's not even in the book because when I was writing the book, I was writing the book at that moment, you know. And, and as we probed it more during many uh, uh, interviews, I began to remember stuff because 
you got to remember this happened every day of my life, you know, day in, week in, month in, year out. It just went on forever. And I tried to, you know, put it out of my mind, not only then so I could survive, but for 40 years, you know, but I couldn't, you know, I've been on suicide watch. I went through that phase where I wanted to kill myself. I went through major, major depression for decades where I just couldn't get out of it, you know? And, and then when I got over that, then I went into blackouts. So, you know, I, I'm, I'm over it, but it manifests itself. You know, as you get older, it morphs into different things. You know, it started off as insomnia and, uh, um, you know, I was extremely hyper and, you know, I had, I was very much like the guy in a beautiful mind calculating things and being calculate calculatory, you know, because of how I had to live, you know, I had to watch her every moment of my life, you know, I couldn't turn my back to her. I had to know where she was in relation to the room, to a door, uh, to a weapon, to, you know, this is how I grew up. I, I basically milis, military style, you know, I was like a Spartan growing up, starving, stealing, you know, military strategies, you know, how to deal with it at night and, and, you know, it wasn't over. At 19, it just begun for me, Yeah. you know? So even to this day, I, I still, I'm still extremely traumatized by it. And I can't hold a job, you know? And that's why I'm a musician. I play a couple hours, a couple hours at nighttime, and then I'm done. If I play with my band or something, they'll hang around and they'll hang around and meet people. You know, people want to meet you and stuff like that. And I can't, you know, I'm like the Neil Peart <laughs> of my bands, as soon as the gig's over, I'm gone because I can't deal with, I can't deal with all the noise and the people and the surroundings. I can't process it all. You know, I don't know who's a threat, you know, it's, 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 it's a tiring lifestyle, you know, and I'm tired. Yeah. I'm tired, you know, and I've dealt with this all on my own. I've had some psychiatric help, but most psychiatrists have said to me, I can't help you. This is, I'm, I'm not familiar with anything. This is way over my head. And I understand that I have yet to meet somebody uh, in the flesh who has an experience like this. You know, you see demonic possession and exorcisms, you know, you know, they last in a few weeks, a few hours in the Annalisa Michelle case, nine months. But I mean, 12 plus years, yeah. you know, I, I've never known anybody on the face of the earth. Everything that I've read, you know, anybody deal with such trauma for so long. You know, I, I can't process life. I, I don't know how to do life. I don't, it took me years to learn how to talk on the phone to people. You know, my wife had to make phone calls for me, you know, to learn how to be sociable, you know, how to be social, how to talk to people, how to not be awkward, how to not want to bail because of my, my PTSD, my trauma, you know, to not want me be in a room when I'm uncomfortable with people, you know, and it still goes on to this day, you know, and some people think I'm a mess and weird and some people, well, you know, I'm a product of what happened to me, you know, and I do my best, but I've raised two children that have children of their own, you know, they own homes, they're doing well, you know, I love them, my love for them is greater than my trauma. It's even hard talking about this, every interview I do, you know, you hear me, I mix up my words, uh, I talk really fast and... You know, because I, I, I still don't know how to talk about it. I'm, I'm shaking right now as we speak, you know, because that's just how it is. It's yeah. just how it is, you know, and I've accepted it. 
Well, we got a few more minutes here, Michael, and I wanted to ask you before we get to our last, uh, what we call our legacy question on your Kron, um, Michael, what became of your mother? Well, to give the story away of, of book number one, um, when I had left at 19 for, for California, I had spent a total of 10 days in California where I was, was with my future wife. I had given my phone number to a cousin of mine who lived in Upland, California. They had got a call. They had called me and they told me that my mother had died. They told me that they found her only because she was decomposing in her apartment and the smell was reaching the other, uh, apartment, uh, uh, people, mm. you know, that had apartments there. When they found her, she was badly decomposed. They assumed the coroner assumed that from the deco uh, decomposition that she had died on X day, when they told me which day that she had died on, that was the day that I finished my life in Cali in, in Canada and left for California. It was as if the mission was over. The demons had, had claimed my mother because I really believe that it wasn't my sister, it wasn't my dad, I was the target. And the reason why I say that is because I became a Christian because of this. And now I speak out against the devil, demons, demonology, and all forms of paranormal. I speak out against that. And I know now that I was the target. It wasn't my sister. It was me because my sister is still in denial. She won't talk about it. In fact, because my book came out, she won't even talk to me anymore. Mm. So my mother died to answer your question. She died on the very day that I left for California. Mm. Oh, let me tell you, she was 46 years old, by the way. Wow. Young. No gray hair, nothing. Mm. 46. Well, we get. And she died of a heart attack. Yeah. Well, I am sorry for your loss uh, in everything you endured, Michael. Um, well, we come to what we call our legacy question on your cron, and that is if in a hundred years someone, perhaps a family member, even is listening to this recording, what message or maybe life lesson do you want to pass along to them? And how do you want to be remembered generally? Well, the only thing I would say, and I say this to my kids and I say this to my grandkids, is that if evil exists like I saw it, I saw it manifested in the flesh, then God must exist. Because evil cannot just run around and do whatever it wants to do. It has limits and boundaries and a purpose. And that's how God tests men. And I would say that to my, my children. Well, I do say that to my children, my grandchildren, and anyone else listening. You know, that Jesus Christ is the way, the life, and the truth. And the only thing that kept me from killing myself or from wanting to live another day on this planet or wanting to be a good father a good grandfather and a good husband is the fact that I surrendered my life to Jesus Christ, knowing that he is what holds it all together. He holds it together from spinning out of 
spinning out of uh, um, in chaos into chaos. And we're all going to die. And I know that. And I know where I'm going to go when I die. And, you know, my legacy, if I had to say what it would be, is that uh, I hung I, I hung in there despite all that I see. I see lots of things on TV about, you know, people addicted to drugs, you know, because they're 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 they lost their love of their life or something like that. And I think about what I went through and I think, my gosh, if I could survive and want to live and you can, too, it's not that bad. Everything is a season. Everything goes away. No matter how difficult the situation you're in, it ends. It's only a season. Time is And if a- you want, want to live the best life you can, that's what you've got to do. You've got to be a survivor. You've got to, you've got to live and choose it. It's a choice. Time is amazing healer. And those are great, inspiring words to live by. Michael, thank you so much for being our guest on your Quran today. It was uh, an amazing story to say the least. And I'm so happy that you survived that and you're able to share your story, as you said, to hopefully help others that may be going through something similar. Thank you so much for being on. Thank you so much. And just so your listeners know, you know, I I speak on these things. Um, If you have a church or, or a group that you would love me to speak at, I love meeting people, talking to people and encouraging people. Right. And we'll have all the information about Michael's book, of course, and contact information, all of that on the Yerkron website. Michael, thank you again and enjoy the rest of your day. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure.